This is the Toasted Sister Podcast. I'm Andy Murphy. is Turning Tide by Medicine Horse from their debut self-titled album, which comes out today, September 8th. The front woman is Cherokee chef Nico Albert-Williams. She's a major voice on Cherokee and indigenous foods and a community mover and shaker. In this episode, we talk about her project, Medicine Horse, religious horror, and how the COVID pandemic steered her towards the important work she does now. But before we head into the interview, I'd like to say thank you. Thank you for listening to this show, which is the only show about indigenous food by an indigenous journalist. If you like what you're hearing, please consider supporting the work I do via Patreon or by visiting the shop on ToastedSisterPodcast.com. All right, let's get started. Nigara, Nico Albert Williams, Dawadoa, Chichaliki, Digarasta Yahaski, Ale Nanehia, Ulistaidi, Dagadeshwa. My name is Nico Albert Williams. I'm a citizen of the Cherokee Nation of Oklahoma. Uh, I'm a chef and executive director of Burning Cedar Sovereign Wellness, and I'm the vocalist for the band Medicine Horse. We just heard a heard a sample of it just right there. And Nico, can you tell me about how this band came together? We started in 2020. People were kind of forming their little like quarantine pods, I think is what we were calling it. So someone that was always, you know, welcome in our house. Um, is Garrett Heck, who ended up being the drummer for Medicine Horse. So it started with just Kyle and Garrett getting together and just kind of jamming, you know, just as a way of, you know, having something to do and connect together <laughs> and during the weirdest of weird times. Um, so this kind of idea and this sound started to come together you know, Kyle and I had had talked about, we'd been in a band together before called She the Serpent. And as that kind of fizzled out or disbanded, we had talked about like this idea of putting another band together and calling it Medicine Horse. And then as he and Garrett were jamming and this sound began to take shape, we were like, okay, I think this is Medicine Horse. They started to put songs together and we needed to bring in you know, a bass player and a lead guitarist to round things out. And then, you know, once we found those people, initially um, we had a 
bass player named Paul. And we immediately, Kyle had wanted to reach out to Travis, who's our lead guitarist now, because he was the guy that had all the good licks, you know, mm -hmm. <laughs> and could really come up with some cool riffs and, and everything. Yeah, this kind of like group started to take shape once they were able to like get some songs structured. I kind of jumped in there and started to write to the music that they were arranging. And it kind of just unfolded from there. Tell me about some of those, uh, some of the lyrics and some of the stories within this uh, very new album that's coming out today. It's it's so crazy. Like I, I've always really loved writing. It was kind of just writing poetry or like just kind of freeform stuff because there was never any music to it because I don't, I'm not, uh, I don't play any instruments. I've always just loved to sing and kind of had that, that dream of one day being in a band, like one day, like finding this group of musicians who would write amazing music that I could write words to, mm -hmm. or that I could take my words and find, you know, a home for them to, to live in. And then that's what this ended up being is they would write these incredible songs. And, you know, sometimes it would be, I would have a piece of, kind of poetry or lyrics already written out that really fit really well with the musical arrangement. So there are a few songs like that, but more often than not, they would write these songs and I would sit there and listen to it. And like the words would just kind of like an emotion would come to me. It would make me think of a story or think of a, you know, a feeling. And I would write to that. The very first song that we wrote was our first single called The Turning Tide. Lyrically, that song, just the way that it started, it it had this really ominous feeling. And I just could kind of see this ship arriving on the shores. And that made me think of colonization. Mm -hmm. And it had this like ominous feeling to it, you know? I mean, we're a doom band, sludge, doom kind of you know, it lends itself to those, those ominous storytelling elements. Mm -hmm. And so the most ominous thing I can think of is colonization. Right. And so that's how the story kind of started to take shape is like, this beastly ship arrives on these beautiful, pristine shores, and proceeds to spread this illness that we're trying to now overpower and, and work our way past, you know? So that's, that was just an emotion that came to me and a thought that came to me that the music reminded me of. And that's how a lot of the songs have taken shape. Another song uh, about a woman having a baby after uh, rape, that was one that really sort of put a, you know, a vivid image within myself, you know, at, at a swamp, you yeah, know, just, just feeling all of those feelings, you know, kind of imagining what uh, she's feeling through your voice and through just all of that really heavy music. I mean, that that was some imagery right there. I really love that part. Is it a traditional uh, a story? It is. Yeah, that. Oh, my gosh, that song. It was it's it's still really emotional to like tell that story every night because like kind of controversial too because I, I have so many mixed feelings about it I absolutely love that song and I love the story that it came from and 
this, the way that that song came about was uh, that was actually one of Kyle's riffs that he came to the band and was like, I got this, I got this sound, listen to this song. And just the very beginning of, of that guitar part immediately made me feel like Bayou kind of vibes. Like it felt like this slow Southern, like that was the ambiance that it brought me back to is like, I, I've spent some time in, in that region and it just had this, like, you know, you could feel the thickness of the air and like the Spanish moss hanging from the, the cypress trees. Like it just had that feeling to it. So I was like, okay, we, we got, I have to, you know, sing a song that evokes that swamp bayou vibe, the way that the song builds and has this, again, kind of ominous or this song just had this darkness to it. And I was like, man, I, I know a story that comes from Cajun folklore. That's just about the darkest thing I can think of. Mm-hmm. And the story is of this creature, the Latish. Uh, you know, I'm a horror movie buff even more than movies. I really love scary stories. Like I love oral tradition of scary stories and legends. And if it has a little bit of like a Catholic bent to it, I'm very into that also, you know, like exorcism horror movies are my favorite, (laughs) you know, anything that has to do with like the darker side of religion has always really been affecting to me and really stuck with me. And so this story of the Latish, the way that I have heard it told and that I've read it before is that it's the spirit of an unbaptized baby. That spirit enters the bayou and becomes this vengeful spirit that will overturn the boats of the fishermen in the bayou. And I kind of took that and like just really dug into like, okay, where would the story come from? You know, like what what would make people come up with this story? And, you know, it has to do with the pressures of Catholicism that if you have a child out of wedlock, that would be very shameful. I'm sure it didn't happen terribly often, but like the most horrific thing I can think of is that you have this this child and you feel like for the survival of yourself, you have to put this child out of its misery, you know, by drowning it in the bayou. And then it becomes, you know, its spirit is released and it can't go to heaven and it doesn't go to hell. It doesn't even end up in purgatory. It's like trapped forever bent on vengeance. Like, oh my God, that is like such a horrifying thing to me. And that's what the song made me think of. So that's the story that we tell. And then I I also started thinking like, you know, what circumstance could a woman be in that she would feel like it would be better for the child in that moment to kill the child rather than raise him? A product of a violent rape is something that came to mind like, okay, I could see like in that time and place when you're so restricted by the religion of your community you would feel like it's better off for this child to not exist than to be raised and for it to know that it was a product of violence in that way. That was the part that was always kind of difficult for me to think about when I sing that song is that, you know, you know, there are a lot of people that would feel like, you know, you would keep that child anyway and raise it in a, and raise him or her in like a loving way. And that replaces the origin of their life, you know? man, you think about where these stories come from, that was not the way the time was, you know? And so 
it's just this super dark tale that ended up put to this music and you can really feel it because of the way that the music matches up with that. What strikes you about this part of religion? Why, why are you, you know, sort of drawn to, uh, you know, the, the horrible side <laughs> of it? <laughs> yeah, my so my background is my father was raised very strict French Catholic. He's Acadian from like New Brunswick area of Canada, and and he chose not to raise us Catholic. He chose to let my brother and I explore spirituality on our own and make our decisions. And for whatever reason, religion has always just been something, even since childhood, that I, I've always been really drawn to and interested in, you know, the different ways that that religions overlap and, and the differences between them and like how people came to these conclusions about the world and felt like a spiritual person but as as a young person I was always searching for like what is my what are my beliefs why are we here 
what happens after we die, all of those big, big existential questions, you know, you know, as I started to get older, I guess, like doing my own research and like learning about these different religions and specifically knowing that, you know, my half of my family is very Catholic. I would explore the history and like the effects or the influence of Catholicism and all throughout history. It's like some of the worst, most violent and the worst of humanity comes from this religion that is supposed to bring out the best of humanity, you know? And so there was the, just this contradiction in it that I just find so fascinating. The imagery, the artwork that comes out of like some of those medieval illuminated manuscripts and things like that. And it was like growing up, like I really wanted to believe in all of the teachings of Catholicism because I really liked the aesthetic of it, you know, like rosary beads and and stained glass windows and like these beautiful illuminated manuscripts and the ritual of mass were all really like beautiful to me from an artistic standpoint but I couldn't put aside all of the atrocities that were done in the name of Catholicism you know you can't really separate those things so it's like I'm drawn to it from an artistic perspective but then I'm also completely disgusted by <laughs> the things that are done in the name of that artistic representation, if that makes sense. Yeah, it, it totally does. I mean, I have that one piece that I've turned into a sticker. It's been the logo for a uh, toasted sister for a little bit. I mean, uh, the Virgin Mary. I, I love um, it so much. Yeah. That's one of my favorites that you've done. It's like yeah. such a classic. <laughs> totally speaks to me. I'm like, yes, you know, like if, if I were to choose a, a true deity, it would be Selu, right? Our corn mother, <laughs> our Cherokee right. corn mother. So like, that's one of those parallels that I love is like, there's this, this idea of like the virgin mother who gives the ultimate sacrifice, right? We do have an element of that in our, you know, Cherokee beliefs and spirituality, Selu is a, the corn mother who sacrifices her life to make sure that her children never go hungry. And that's where corn comes from in our stories. The storytelling element has always just been like, I mean, the Bible is a great storybook. There's all kinds of crazy shit that happens in there. <laughs> They're great stories. It's just that like, man, people got to like really treat each other in such a horrible way and use those stories as a reason for it. And it's just like that, that part of it has never been okay with me. You know, and, and I chose, you know, corn as, um, you know, the focus of that piece because Cherokees are one tribe that uh, holds corn as like this mother figure, Navajo, so many other uh, tribes have corn as this like very giving, very powerful, very beautiful and innocent sort of being like mm -hmm. the Virgin Mary. And I just love all that Virgin Mary art. And um, here in New Mexico, there's, um, you you know, Mexican uh, artistry mixed into that. And I just love that as well. I don't have tattoos, um, but I've, if I ever got one, I mean, I'm like the only, you know, 30 year old <laughs> in the country without <laughs> just a tattoo. Just do it. <laughs> <laughs> just do it. If I ever got one, it would be Blessed Mary, Mother of the Corn. Uh, but I want to go back to your, to your music. How did you sort of develop your singing, screaming style? 
Kyle. Mm. Well, so Kyle was recording some vocals. He's been a vocalist, you know, for many, many, many years and is well known for being a metal vocalist. And so he was the vocalist in the band She the Serpent, and they were recording some demos I was just there hanging out and it was after work one day. I think I had had like maybe a particularly grueling day in the kitchen or or like some things were going wrong or something. I don't remember exactly, but um, you know, he said, you should do, you should, you know, do some background vocals with me, do some backup vocals and scream. And I was like, I don't know how to do that, (laughs) but I'll try. And so he had me, you know, set me all up with headphones on on the mic and everything. And I just like did not know what I was doing. And I let out some like really weak, hilarious, like, "Ah," you know, (laughs) and he was like, no, no, (laughs) not like that. He like just kind of explained where in my throat to let the sound out from. Like he just had a really helpful way of helping me figure out like how it is to make that kind of a noise. And I did it. And both the guy recording us and him were like, oh my God, like she can really scream. (laughs) And he was like, I knew it. I knew that there was something in there. I knew that you had that. It turned out that like, I, I'm very loud. (laughs) <laughs> yeah. yeah. So uh, yeah, like there's just a, pa- like I'm a much more powerful screamer than I am, you know, singer. I ended up putting background vocals on uh, like three or four songs on that first EP that was put together um, for She the Serpent. And I joined the band as like a second vocalist and just kind of honed it with that project. And then so by the time, you know, Medicine Horse came around, I was really nervous more so about doing the clean singing parts. I really, really wanted to, because I've always wanted to, you know, sing in a band and always thought that it would be, you know, clean vocals like that. And we had already, you know, confirmed that I could scream from the previous project. So it was really just kind of finding the sound of how those two things like combine, you know, stylistically. Uh, what are live uh, performances like? Are you just in that Tulsa area right now? Or are you guys going to go out of uh, Oklahoma anytime soon? Are you guys going to come to Albuquerque? <laughs> we might. <laughs> we've been um, we've been discussing a, a small tour road trip for the Navajo Metal Festival. We might. I don't know. I don't know if we can work it out with our schedules, but uh, it's it's in the band chat <laughs> that we're kind of trying to figure out if we can do it. Right now, we've been playing lots and lots of shows in and around Tulsa. We have ventured into Texas a little bit. We've played Dallas. You know, we have a lot of different shows coming up here around Tulsa. And then probably in the winter, we're talking about doing maybe just like a you know, kind of a four-day, five-day run through Arkansas down into Louisiana and back up, and then maybe some more Texas shows. If we can make November work for Navajo Nation Metal Fest, that's, we talked about it last year too. Like we would just really love to be able to do that. Um, so that's goals. If it doesn't happen this year, November's tough, you know, like yeah. Native American Heritage Month takes up a lot of my time and energy most of the time. It books up really quickly. 
Yeah, that, that's when everybody wants to hear about uh, Native American food and yes, ask definitely. all of us about, <laughs> oh, do you celebrate Thanksgiving? I mean, <laughs> it's been a couple of years of uh, journalists and folks reaching out to me, you know, asking me about Thanksgiving and, you know, seeing all these, um, you know, other food publications uh, come out with their Native Americans today and Thanksgiving articles. I can imagine it's pretty busy for you. Um, that's kind of a good segue into the food work mm-hmm. you've been doing for, for the last couple of years. You just mentioned you were a chef. You came back from a day of uh, maybe frustration. Tell, tell me about that job and how did you move into uh, what you've been doing recently? You've been going out and educating. You've been, you've built up your own little uh, burning cedar company. Tell me about that. In 2020, I was the executive chef at a restaurant in downtown Tulsa, fully living the the restaurant lifestyle, which is, you know, lots and lots of hours a week. And it's it's pretty high stress, high pressure, um, you know, running a restaurant for for other people, you know, that own the restaurant. So there's a lot of like, you know, then the pandemic hit and we all shut down you know, I had a a huge chunk of time for self-reflection. You know, the restaurant that I was working for ended up reopening and not hiring me back. I mean, I guess it was kind of a COVID-related layoff. You know, reopening in in that era was difficult. I guess the executive chef is a pretty expensive piece of the payroll. So they ended up opening without me, which at first I like went straight into like a full on existential crisis, you know, like I haven't not had a job since I was like 15, (laughs) you know? (laughs) So it was very uh, scary to think about like, okay. Um, I immediately felt like I needed to go out and get another job and was like applying for jobs and freaking out because we're still in quarantine and what am I going to do? And, but I was on unemployment and I finally just like, took a beat and said, okay, well, you know, maybe this is an opportunity to like rethink my entire existence. Is this really what I want to be doing? Do I want to leave the restaurant industry altogether? I can always cook. I love cooking, but running a restaurant kind of takes the joy out of the cooking a lot of the time. Mm -hmm. And so it was like, you know, do I need to completely change my career and change it up and, and, you know, give myself some relief that way? Or do I need to like rethink how to cook for a living? And I kind of went that direction. And, you know, I'd been doing catering as like sort of a side hustle, catering indigenous food and speaking about indigenous food, studying, sharing what I'm learning with my community. That was always, you know, my passion project to the side of what was actually paying my bills. And so the thought was, you know, is there a way for me to, you know, support my family by doing what I'm truly passionate about, which is working with indigenous food. I decided to go all in on that idea. And that was starting a catering company called Burning Cedar Indigenous Foods. And it just immediately took off and we were so busy and everything was, you know, it was very successful right off the bat, you know, uh, everyone is interested in indigenous food and starting to learn more about it and really wanting access to it. And so to be providing that at that time was just really good timing. And so that was great for me, you know, feeling like I was doing the food that made me feel good, 
offering healthy food for my community that was culturally relevant and being able to teach people about it and paying my bills at the same time. You know, it was great. But I was also seeing this need. Every catering, whether I was making lunch at someone's office or, you know, catering a dinner at a university or whatever it was, it always was half providing the food itself and then half teaching people what that food is, you know, because with indigenous foods, you know, the whole source of this podcast is that people don't necessarily, even people in our own communities don't know what indigenous food is. And so there was a lot of education that went along with it. And I really enjoyed that part. You know, it became apparent that there was a need in Tulsa for a place for people to access this stuff. You know, the more the business grew, the more I was like, well, you know, I kind of need a kitchen for this. I also wanted it to be a place where it could be educational, where it wasn't just for me by myself, just making this food. I wanted to invite people in. And so that's where the idea of the nonprofit came about is I don't want to just be profiting off my cultural inheritance of all of these recipes. And a lot of the foods that I'm talking about and using are from all these different cultures, you know, all these different tribal traditions and their ingredients and how they use them. You know, I incorporate all these different things and I've never felt like it belongs to me. I feel like it belongs to all of us. And so I wanted to create a space where I could give back as much as I'm getting out of this. And so that's how Burning Cedar Sovereign Wellness happened is, you know, this idea came about that I could build a space that would be a place for the indigenous community in the urban area of Tulsa to gather, heal and grow. That's kind of our our motto is, you know, it works on so many different levels because gathering is such an important part of indigenous food, right? We're gathering resources from, from nature, we're, but we're also gathering together as a community. That is how we heal the things that our indigenous communities are suffering from. Things like the health disparities that we see all the time, um, cultural disconnection, socioeconomic disparities, climate change that's happening to our planet, All of those things can be healed through accessing traditional indigenous wellness practices. That's what we focus on here is we wanted to create a space where people could come and learn and connect to each other and heal. What is the Native community like there in Tulsa? It's very diverse. In Oklahoma in general, we we have 39 federally recognized tribes have tribal land. So that's 39 tribes already. And then that's not even every tribe accounted for because there are ones that aren't federally recognized or that have, you know, like there's a significant number of Navajo people that live in Tulsa that, you know, their reservation's not here, but but they live here now for whatever reason. I mean, there's just a large Native community, but we've been largely not visible in the urban society, I guess, of Tulsa, you know, Mm -hmm. Um, the streets all have indigenous names. The, the land itself of Tulsa is Cherokee nation, Muscogee Creek nation and Osage nation land. You know, we are are a presence here, but it's not been acknowledged as much historically. So visibility is a big thing for us. And a lot of our, our families are intertribal too, 
you know, my, in my household alone, my, you know, Kyle, my husband and bandmate is Ponca, Oto and Iowa. My stepdaughter is Ponca, Oto, Iowa and Creek. I mean, that's a lot of tribes just under one roof. You know, a lot of our families have mixed because there's such a large native population here and we all, all socialize and are, and are connected community. That was another reason for opening this space is like Tulsa is such a native urban center, but there's no community center here. You know, know, if you want to have cultural events or connect with your indigenous community, you either have to drive all the way out to the tribal headquarters or have these private events. Let me jump in here because I'm going to ask a question completely out of left field. I'm going to ask a question about the Supreme Court decision on McGirt versus Oklahoma in 2020. So the Supreme Court agreed on the side of McGirt that the boundaries of the Muskogee Creek Reservation, which was created by Congress in the 1830s, were never dissolved, even after Oklahoma became a state. And so that meant that, yes, Mr. McGirt, who is a Seminole tribal member, did actually commit a crime within the boundaries of the Muskogee Creek Reservation And he argued he should not be tried by the state of Oklahoma, but rather in a federal court. So that meant that suddenly, overnight, a majority of eastern Oklahoma became Indian reservation land, including Tulsa. That was a huge landmark case. Is McGirt something that has been an issue for you opening uh, this uh, nonprofit or, you know, I, I know in the beginning when there's a ruling on that, you know, there's a whole lot of like, are they going to kick us out of Tulsa or right. are we going to have to pay taxes to so-and-so like what's going to happen? Did that, any of that like have an effect on anything you do? You know, it really hasn't had much of an effect mm-hmm. on the actual operations of our organization my business or anything like that. It's just a constant part of the conversation. It's something that like the native community here has really grabbed hold of. And like, we're kind of digging our heels in and saying like, we're very purposeful. I think more so now after the decision to say you are on Muscogee Creek nation land, you know, like it's on our, our sign it's on our website. It's like very much a part of like, you're on a reservation right now, just to remind you (laughs) in every, you know, every gathering, we, we, we acknowledge that, you know, and not just as some sort of like, you know, checking a box land acknowledgement. It's like just part of, we've made it part of our, of the conversation in every day, you know, in an, I think in an effort to normalize the idea and to help people understand, because that's where we're at, like post McGirt decision is that people within the native community and non-native community still have a hard time understanding what exactly that means. Cause it's very complicated, you know, like the jurisdictional boundaries and how that all legally works out, you know, the legal system is confusing enough as it is. And then you try and explain to people like sovereignty, federal law versus state law. It is so confusing. Like you have to have a degree to understand it sometimes. (laughs) Um, So it takes a lot of 
you know, sometimes in the like mainstream media and mainstream society here, the story gets misconstrued a little bit. Like a lot of times all you hear on the news is the story of like some guy that is not going to be prosecuted for whatever this or that crime because they're native. And then they don't elaborate on why. And they don't elaborate on the fact that he is going to be prosecuted for his prime, his crimes. He's just going to be prosecuted in federal court. You know, they, they really only talk about the part where he's not, not being charged because he's native. And so it gives people the wrong impression that all of a sudden, like all these natives are out here getting all this free stuff and not paying taxes and not getting, (laughs) you know, sentenced for their crimes. And it's like, oh my gosh, that is not the case. (laughs) All we're saying is that we have always had the right to, you know, handle our own politics ourselves as sovereign nations. So yeah, it's, it's just been a lot of us having to very firmly keep hold of that sovereignty because we do have state government that seem to want to attack that sovereignty at every turn, you know? Yeah. I mean, there's, there's still challenges to that McGirt uh, decision um, and probably challenges coming up every new non-native political leader there in Oklahoma. (laughs) Even some of the ones that are enrolled in tribes seem to be against their own people. I don't know how political I should even get, because I'm not, you know, I have I, I'm like, I'm, I'm going to start dropping name bombs and just like, yeah. honestly, it, we're, we all know we're talking about Kevin Stitt <laughs> and he's a Cherokee citizen. And uh-huh. it's like, what is wrong with you, bro? <laughs> like, you're supposed to be with us. Why are you always trying to fight your own tribe? There, there's so much politics that go into it. And, uh, you know, we're just over here trying to like make some corn soup and, not die of diabetes. That's all I'm caring about. And maybe right. like, you know, restore some biodiversity and, and <laughs> in our, our little corner of green country. I mean, me, me too. I don't, I don't like to get, you know, I don't like to talk politics. I don't, there was this quote I heard one time where, um, that always kind of stuck with me and I'll, I'm, I'm like paraphrasing mm-hmm. it, but part of native identity is inherently activism, right? Because your very existence, the fact that you're here and you identify and you are a member of your tribe is activism, <laughs> you know, it, it on its own, just your existence alone is activism. So it's like, you can't really sit anything out. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I understood that maybe the first time when, uh, somebody told me that, um, you know, that I had a role in this whole, uh, native food movement and, and, you know, this whole time I, I, as a journalist, I had always just thought about myself as a fly on the wall, you know, just a person Mm -hmm. who is neutral, just writing down the facts and getting quotes and making sure everything, uh, you know, is correct before it goes out. But when she said that to me, you know, even you, Andy, you know, are part of this whole movement. 
I sat with that a little bit and I was thinking like, yeah, I think I am, you know, I I'm, you know, fighting for this space here yeah. you know, in the podcast world for all of these awesome stories, you know, just as an educator, I think, uh, you know, you have that kind of activist hat on as well, you know, kind of, you know, going against some of the stereotypes and, you know, really old ways of thinking, you know, I think, you know, kind of makes me feel kind of like an activist. But yeah, it was it was kind of like a game changer for me when she said that to me that I had a role instead of just kind of being this, um, you know, this person in the corner and taking notes and, you know, here's my little podcast. Uh, but uh, it, no, it's, it's a huge really part of it. And I mean, it's so important. Like we talk about representation all the time. And like mm-hmm. I work really closely um, for many years with the organization Illuminative who do so much like, you know, ensuring proper representation in media, they're just constantly driving home that like, it is so important to have native people in every role, like not just the performers, not just the, the cooks, but also the people writing about the performers and the cooks. It happens every day, all the time. It's even happened like with our album release with Medicine Horse or any article that's written about my organization or my work with native, you know, with food sovereignty. If it's not a native person writing the article, I have to like pour over it with a fine tooth comb. And even after I feel like I've done my absolute best to come across and like to communicate my message exactly how I want it to be perceived it it still comes off wrong you know (laughs) and so it's so important to have people like you that that understand our perspective you know like it's like no one can tell the native story in the way that another native person can because inevitably and through no fault of their own, really, like even the most seasoned and like objective journalist will get things wrong because there's just these inherent systemic things, misunderstandings that mainstream culture have grown up with that even just the slightest wrong word. And it's like, man, you got the whole vibe wrong. Like, that's not what it's about. Yeah, there are. There's (laughs) articles out there where we've had to be like, man, why do you have to you make it sound like that's not what I'm trying to say, (laughs) you know, like you get it. (laughs) Yeah. I like, I like how you put that, you know, just like turns off the whole vibe of, uh, of a story of somebody's story at uh, native America calling. And it's also of course, been ingrained in me. I've just learned so many uh, terms and words that are just, you know, they make our eyes roll, you know, it's just Mm -hmm. uh, stereotypical or yeah, it just like gives the whole piece a different, a different vibe. And you're like, oh, I can tell that's a non-native writer (laughs) (laughs) because they don't feel that same vibe. They don't feel like how, you know, a, a word like, ancient or you know if you put it in a in a a sentence in a weird way it's just like nah he's yeah he's thinking about us in in others it's it's so like it's so nuanced that, that I understand how like the writers think that they are capturing what we're doing and I'm like you just 
didn't get it quite right. You know, like you're so close, man. And like, I can tell that they really appreciate what we're doing and support it and, and are wanting to give us this platform and it's all great, but it's like, there's just this little bit of language that the way you have to use it, you know, it's very delicate and it's, it's one of the most difficult parts about what I do is like, whether it's the music or the the food. And a lot of times it's very much like, you know, uh, they think they're like doing it in our favor in solidarity in some way, you know, mm-hmm. um, you know, we've been written about um, before with Medicine Horse, with the album coming out, one of the writers reviewing the album, like kind of jumped on this, like, yeah, damn the man, you know, white people suck kind of thing. I was like, wait, whoa, 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 whoa. You know, like that's not what we're about at all. Like saying that indigenous culture and like our songs being about like pride and, you know, envisioning indigenous futures and telling our stories of resiliency and um, and triumph over adversity mm-hmm. isn't synonymous with saying white people are bad. You know, like that's <laughs> not an assumption that I need you to make because also like three out of the five people in medicine horse are white. My dad's white. Like (laughs) that's not the the message at all. Like, thank you. Thank you for like being on our team and being like enthusiastic about this album, but that is not what we're trying to say. It doesn't have to be either or, you know, we're trying to tell our indigenous stories and we're proud of our history and we're proud of still being here. And that's what I'm screaming about. (laughs) So like (laughs) talk about that and not like try and make it like introduce negativity into it. Yeah. And like you said, I'm just over here trying to make some corn soup. Right. Like over here trying to to stir my soup and sing some songs. (laughs) (laughs) I love that. So, so what's coming up next for you? You got anything um, big coming up in terms of food and then tell me about uh, maybe like your next show or two uh, for Medicine Horse. Yeah. So as far as um, food goes, we have our grand opening uh, for the Burning Cedar Sovereign Wellness Center here in Tulsa um, on September 14th. We're going to be planting a cedar tree and doing like a dedication, like planting this medicine tree, you know, in lieu of like a ribbon cutting, I felt like that was more appropriate for us is to, you know, plant something that will be growing for many years into the future and providing medicine for our community. And I want everyone to come and see the space and get inspired by all of the, you know, potential that we have in this space now. And then we do have some medicine horse shows coming up. Um, like we've got one Friday, the 8th, which is the same day that our our record is coming out. And so it's not our official record release show, though, because we've planned that for a few weeks later. And it's going to be a Halloween show. So it's October 28th in Tulsa at Whittier Bar. And it also happens to be the five-year anniversary of Whittier Bar opening. And they've been a great venue for us. Like we love everybody there and we love playing there. We play there all the time. So it's kind of fitting that we have our album release party and celebration at Whittier Bar. We're trying to put together a couple fun kind of spooky cover songs 
Last year, I got to tell a couple scary stories as like interludes between some of our songs because <laughs> I, I love doing storytelling stuff and especially the spooky ones. We've got some really great ones. And of course, you know, that we've got a couple songs that are in themselves scary stories. So Those that's the thing. Yeah, so that's, <laughs> that's the, the big one. thing on the horizon that we're all really looking forward to with the band is our big uh, um, album release. Our social media for the band is at Medicine Horse 918. And then for Burning Cedar Sovereign Wellness, you can follow us on social media at Burning Cedar Tulsa. And our website is burningcedar.org. Follow Toasted Sister on social media for updates about upcoming projects and events like the Lakota Food Summit, which I'll be speaking at this month in South Dakota and a developing food event happening right here in Old Town Albuquerque, also this month. I'm Andy Murphy. Yeah, yeah, yeah.